Welcome to Standing on Points, the history and culture of punctuation. I'm super excited about today's episode because for the first time in this podcast, we have a guest and not only any guest, but an award-winning young poet. Although she's still quite young, she has won an impressive list of competitions such as the Orwell Youth Prize in 2019 and the Tower Poetry Competition in 2020. Her work revolves around big topics like climate change or social media, but also captures the beauty in the everyday and the world around us. Although she's thinking about the future a lot, she's also getting into conversations with poets of the past, notably John Keats. She has published her poetry in academic magazines, amongst others, and has read her work for literature festivals, Extinction Rebellion events, and the BBC's World in Music. So I'm especially chuffed that she's agreed to talk to me today about her poetry, poetry in general, and particularly the role of punctuation in the creative process. So Nadia, over to you. Would you like to introduce us yourself? Hi, um, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, I'm a big punctuation fan. Um, my name is Nadia Lines. I'm 19 years old and I'm a first year undergraduate at Cambridge reading English. I, um, I started writing poetry when I was 14 um, because my family and I took a trip to Rome and my mum and I had a spare afternoon and she wanted to see the Spanish steps, which were unfortunately undergoing renovations at the time. So instead, we went to the house next to the Spanish Steps, which is the Keats Shelley house where Keats died. And I had not come across Keats or his poetry before. But when you stand in the room that Keats died in, you're kind of forced to pay attention to poetry. And that's when I began writing, um, really. And it's been it's been a fun ride. I've been very lucky in that I've I've met a lot of um very brilliant poets who have given me a lot of help and support and um, there's a really there's a really nice community of young poets in the UK who um, are, are just really lovely and they're, they're my people and um, I've been very lucky that I've, I've had many opportunities to, to, to share my work and to and to improve my work because when you're young there's a lot of improving to do <laughs> so yes Thank you. Trust me, when you're old or you're getting older, <laughs> there's still a lot of improvement to do. Well, that's such a beautiful story about the Keats. I wasn't aware of that. So I mm. feel the the Keats poem that caught my attention and they're going to read to us in a minute. That yes. gets a, um, Now that I know about this, it has a whole new um, shade to it because uh, you talk about bedrooms and rooms, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so... Thank you for for um, for this very evocative uh, anecdote and the poem that I'm talking about. Uh, I came across it on Twitter because Hester, our, um, our supervisor, my old supervisor, your current supervisor at Cambridge, mm. retweeted the poem, and I was so struck by the poem itself and by the punctuation of it. And then I reached out to you and ask you whether you would like to chat to me about it. So would you mind reading the poem for us, please? Yes, of course. For Keats. When I make my bed, I think of the women weeping in your bedrooms, sighing through those windows, your windows, the ghost of the cat curling about their ankles, your auburn hair in a locket in a cabinet next door. I wonder how splendid or normal you looked in the sun, looked under a candle, looked out at the plum tree, the steps, that sky. It's raining, John, bring a coat. 
Do you have the same circle of parched skin on the pad of your finger that I do? When I was locked in a little room, I thought of you relentlessly. The bells at midnight, the bells at 1am. Can't you see who it is weeping in rooms for your spooled up soul, for your pent up genius, for your poor fiance, for preventable deaths, for death, for you, John, for you? Thank you. Wow, I got goosebumps. Wow, <laughs> amazing. Thank you. Thank I was, you. Um, I was very, uh, very interested to hear how you were performing punctuation mm. because um, I'll put a link to the poem in the description for this episode so people can have a look at it because you have, um, you know, you have uh, dashes and question yes i realized you love the dash <laughs> mm. um can you can you tell me more about the dash then when we, uh, yeah i mean H- hester's trying to get me to stop using the dashes but she'll never win um <laughs> i'm glad I... to hear that <laughs> <laughs> i i i love a dash because i i think it it's quite an emotional thing it, it's the kind of thing that I, I tend not to include punctuation in my first drafts maybe apart from the dash um because it helps me work out where I want the pauses to be. So when I then sort of lineate the poem, I can think where my initial thoughts about pauses were. Mm. And I also like how um, I like how striking they look on the page. Like when you write a dash, it, it, it kind of has a movement to it. And I like that on the page, you can see mm. the movement of the dash. Um, I, I, I just really like them. <laughs> Yeah, that's so interesting because you you kind of put your finger on the one of the key things about punctuation, which is that it's a, it has a visual impact, and grammatical for sure as well, but also the mm. breath, right? Mm. And um, it kind of orchestrates where to pause, but then um, the dash brings that out even stronger because you have all the all the other marks at your disposal that you could choose, but you chose yeah. this very powerful and heavy one. Mm. And um, I, um, I think maybe I was just thinking about semicolons, so that's why uh, my eyes were drawn to the the end of the poem, yes. where um, you kind of enumerate the things um, for, for for whom mm. the person is is weeping. And mm. I was wondering whether you could tell uh, speak a little bit about this this you know really. Um, uh, kind of list of semicolons I think you're using yeah. five in one yeah. go um, where you know you just said that that was that's something that you put in afterwards probably yes um they were initially they're initially just commas mm. um but I found that the commas moved the phrases on too quickly and by putting the semicolons in you can kind of slow I find that it slows down what what you're trying to say and I felt with the commas it was kind of rushing through this list of things a bit too quickly and like they're quite serious things like Keats's fiance I I didn't want to just skip over her with a comma so I felt that maybe a semicolon would allow for a little bit more of a pause Um, but they're really interesting pieces of punctuation and I, I like thinking about them in terms of a list because one of the cool things you can do with a semicolon is that you can you can make you can make lists with them <laughs> and I'm kind of interested in how 
how listing works in, in poetry because I, I feel that sometimes it can be a bit a bit overdone if it's not done properly. Um, so the semicolon for me just gives gives the list um, a bit more importance. Yes, I, I absolutely felt that too because I was uh, I was wondering about the other lists in this poem because at the beginning you talk about mm. the room and um, the ghost of the cat curling, yeah. the hair. So there are other lists as well, but you didn't choose the semicolon for them. Yeah. So <laughs> here at the end, I thought that was super powerful because it gave gravity to the bits in between. Mm. And um, uh, and I thought the it was it was quite interesting how you um, how you used. Uh, a diverse kind of um, uh, how should I say that like uh, different kinds of lengths for the parts in between right so you have yeah. your spooled up soul pent up genius and then suddenly it becomes for death which I felt was like mm. quite a shock to to read that at the end was yeah. that something you were playing around with as well um yeah I think so I think it kind of depends on the lineation so um, about a year ago, I went to um, an Arvon residential course um, for for four young poets, and I spent some time working with the poet Mimi Calvati. Um, she's she's really brilliant, mm. um, and she was talking to me a lot about lineation because until that point, I, I just kind of wrote poetry, and I didn't think about how you're actually meant to write poetry. Like I didn't really have a concept of <laughs> how to lineate a poem <laughs> at mm -hmm. all, and she basically just taught me how to do it, and. Um, one of the techniques that she she kind of mentioned to me and that I, I like to include in my writing is having so instead of having a line break after for preventable deaths for mm -hmm. death if you have preventable deaths and then keep for death on the same line then I find that kind of gives what you're trying to say a little bit more impact because the line break can kind of can kind of soften what you're trying to say a little bit whereas if it's if it's directly one after the other then you're kind of forced to confront it a little bit more I think. Yes that's really interesting um, because um, it's not what maybe one would expect right the mm. the, the um, for death kind of stands out much more if it's on the next line by itself but then to actually pull it to, to the line before and to attach it is you know what happens to everyone eventually right it's the, yeah. the, 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 <laughs> the inevitable yeah I mean you can't you can't put it off by yes by putting it on your next line forever you know mm -hmm. it's going to be at the end of the line at some point so you might as well mm -hmm. you might as well face it I guess yes and then I found the the last line for you comma John comma for you um, I found it so powerful after this um, this list of semicolons because it really um, it really sped up the reading process or the, the kind of process of capturing mm -hmm. what was happening and it really felt like some kind of collapsing of um, of the pace and of the like where the whole poem was leading. Yes. So did you work with the the, um, the different? Yeah, I did. I mean, I could have put more semicolons in there, but I think I think the things I was talking about before, like soul and genius and preventable deaths, uh, are quite abstract concepts. And I think sometimes when we talk about Keats, 
it can be hard to think about him as a as a human being because he was you know he's so massively influential he's he's so well known i mean the story of his life and his death is you know it, it's part of the english canon now and i i find it very hard to separate his work from his life mm. and and i think sometimes we get a bit distracted by frankly the the tragedy and the and the poetry of it all when he was really just a young man who was mm. dying and i wanted to i wanted to make it clear that beneath it all he he was just a a, a human being mm-hmm. yeah so maybe maybe that's a good point to talk about your love for Keats. Yeah. So, yeah, just I, I heard that you know you you um you seem to connect on a kind of a personal level you had yes. that experience that was yes. so impactful for yourself mm. and then you keep going back to his poetry and ha- having a conversation with him through forums <laughs> but even just like a a direct address. Yes, I he's um I think one of the things that people love so much about Keats is that he's not he had such he had such a magnetic personality that seems to be reaching to people even though he's dead um I I also like one of the things I like about Keats is that he was so self-conscious of poetry and about wanting to be a poet and to write and to have people read his writing and as as a young poet that's something that I think like really resonates with me because poetry is um frankly it's a little bit embarrassing sometimes and Mm -hmm. you 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 kind of have to be self-conscious about it I think and Mm -hmm. I honestly just I just adore his writing and I I I think it's beautiful and I I genuinely believe that it's it's the best poetry in the English language and and he's he was so young you know Mm -hmm. I mean I'm 19 now and I've lived two thirds of the life that, that Keats did. And that's mm. something that I think a lot about when I'm writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, like you say, Keats was, Keats was kind of aware that his time was mm. limited at some point. Yeah. And so yeah. there's always this kind of um, the Stamoclus sword of that inevitable yes. event. So his poetry has like a a kind of maybe melancholy and urgency to it and yeah and I felt that um that sense of the looming catastrophes also sort of suffused your work yes um be, being a young person in the 21st century is just one looming catastrophe after another <laughs> to be honest I can't remember a time when I've experienced like things like political stability and no looming disaster you know by the time I started to have like a political awareness you know things like Brexit and Donald Trump being elected and things were just going frankly off the rails and it hasn't really been normal since (laughs) and Mm -hmm. I mean even even with the pandemic like people say this is a once in a century occurrence and we can only hope that's true but it is it's so traumatic for everyone yeah. and that's a lot to deal with and then the climate catastrophe as well which um I think really looms over young people hmm. big time it's a lot it's a source of like a lot of my friends it's a source of real anxiety and it, it a lot of people feel very powerless in the face of it um mm-hmm. so do you feel um do you feel that you you negotiate this those anxieties through poetry 
so um so I want to ask you a little bit about the role of poetry I guess in those big topics that you mm -hmm. were interested in yeah I think I find that sometimes poetry has to strike a balance between talking about a serious issue and then also being like enjoyable to read mm -hmm. um, because if, if if a poem is too preachy then people aren't going to like it but if it doesn't confront the issue then it doesn't confront the issue so I, I think sometimes it can be a place where you can talk about the impact of these big big things like the climate catastrophe mm -hmm. on like a on like a personal everyday kind of level because again they're kind of they're kind of abstract like right now for me in my life the climate catastrophe is is frankly quite quite abstract and mm. it can help to to think about it in in everyday terms because we have to live in the everyday we don't we don't live in the abstract yes and and i think this um i found this attention to detail in your poems from that the kind of I don't know what the direction is, whether it goes outwards, like it extends <laughs> outwards. And then, you know, we, we, we start to realize, OK, this flower is, you know, signifying bigger things mm -hmm. or whether it's like the bigger things that come back to the everyday. And maybe it doesn't really matter. But I really um, I really like I, I really kind of saw the maybe Keatsian attention <laughs> to detail and to beautiful things and beautiful language and beautiful rhythm. Um, which then is very much in conversation with the bigger things around it. And in a way, uh, that is what, what interests me in punctuation, because, you know, you, you, we've talked about these small, um, hardly differently looking marks, like a semicolon mm. and, a colon, and a comma, right? Mm. Like there's literally um, just a little hook at, yeah. the, at yeah. the bottom that, that differentiates them. But that attention to detail can then really bring home what's happening around us. Yeah, completely, completely. I was wondering whether um, whether you felt some like friction when you are writing about something, making it, so, so does poetry make things beautiful and maybe funny that are quite heavy? Is that, or is that a very uh, productive, generative um, uh, friction for you? I think, I think the humour is is something that's really important to me and I I try and include it, you know, as much as I can in my writing because I I find that there are some things that are really serious that are, are also like really quite funny and it can be kind of difficult to you know, if if you only talk about something through the lens of it being tragic or or being devastating, mm -hmm. then I mean <sighs> what what does anyone get out of that you know I think we all know that life is hard and sad but it, you've got to kind of laugh about it in some places because otherwise really what is the point um so I, I yeah. try and include I try and include humor where I can but it's a difficult thing to navigate because you never know if you're going to be you know something that I may find funny could be deeply hurtful for someone else and I think it's you have to be very careful that you strike the right balance with humor. Mm -hmm. I I was so um, I, was, I was laughing at the the poem called "Divorce Proceedings." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is humanity saying goodbye to coal, yes. breaking up with coal, right? Yes, and saying okay, 
um, I mean, I, I felt that the Trumpian rhetoric of Ko being beautiful and pure and so mm. good was sort of resonating. <clears throat> um, so I thought it was it was humanity saying, okay, cool, cool, we had our day and it was nice. And by the way, I cheated on you with nuclear energy. It didn't also didn't work out. Now I'm more into sustainables. Mm. I thought it was such a brilliant playful way of confronting those issues yeah um and and um and still again the the kind of mirroring it that in the in the everyday yeah I mean this was the first poem I ever had published I was I was 15 when this poem was published and it was a big deal for me because <laughs> I've been <laughs> writing for a while and not really getting anywhere so when this poem was published it it meant an awful lot to me um but yeah it's um I <laughs> I'm not really sure what to say about it. Um, I just mm-hmm. think that that something like coal production, for example, is so fraught um, because basically everyone agrees that we should stop doing it because it's killing the planet. But at the same time, you know, that so the, the example of, of Trump in America, you know, there are people who it is their livelihoods and it is their lives. And it's very difficult when the world is telling you you have to stop doing something because it's it's bad, but it's, mm. it's your it's your way of way of life and it's your way of providing for your family. And that's that's really, really tough. Um, and so I think sometimes you just need to look at it through the lens of of something else um, through the lens yeah. of a, a lens of a breakup poem because mm-hmm. a breakup is something that is is often painful but is often for the best as well you know it's, it's one of those mm-hmm. things where either it can they can often be bittersweet because you know that the end of the relationship is going to hurt but it's also kind of necessary and I think you can kind of see that in in our in the way that we need to move away from coal production like it's going to hurt but it, it's also going to be necessary yes yeah that's that's a words of wisdom <laughs> <laughs> so the the maybe a follow-up question to, to that would be maybe a little bit polemical and, and provocative but do you think that poetry can save the world oh it's one of those questions isn't it um mm-hmm. I think that poetry can save individuals um, and if poetry can save enough individuals then maybe it can save the world. I, I think I, I think poetry is in a place at the moment where it, its reputation is kind of strange in that poetry is producing probably some of the best art of the 21st century but it is also kind of associated with being a sad teenage girl and being a sad teenage girl is 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 fine. Um, it, there's nothing wrong with that. But it, um, I, I think, I think for poetry to to be able to save the world, it needs to have it needs to have a more universal appeal. And I'm not entirely sure how we go about go about doing that. I think it has a lot to do with schools. I think when when I was at school, I mean GCSE poetry. Um, you know, I studied some brilliant poems that really had an impact on me. Like Porphyria's Lover. I think Porphyria's Lover is brilliant. But mm-hmm. what what fifteen year old can relate to Porphyria's Lover? You know what? <laughs> you know how has that got anything mm-hmm. to do with the lived experience of teenagers? And it was predominantly by men. I think we. With the course of my GCSE, we studied hardly anything by women and even less by writers mm. of colour. 
And I think that if we want people to, if we want young people to engage in poetry and to have poetry be part of their lives, we need to recognise the impact of the classics. Like we need to talk about Shelley and Wordsworth and Keats and, and Shakespeare, but we also need to talk about the poets who are, who are writing today. Because, you know, who's going to care about poetry if all they've got is Porphyria's lover? <laughs> Unless they're yes. a sad nerd like me. So, um... <laughs> and me. <laughs> and probably lots of people yeah. too. But I totally see what you mean about the relevance. Yeah. And, and keeping it relevant and making it, making it matter. And then once it really does matter to you, you can also go to Porphyria's lover. Exactly. Because then you are kind of yeah. trained to see how it matters to you yeah I think it's I think it's about striking that balance and one of the good things about poetry is that it can let you empathize with with other people but you also need to be able to empathize with yourself and I think in a lot of curriculums that's that's currently what is missing um mm. go straight to the empathy for other people without giving any to yourself and that I I think isn't very productive nor is it very healthy or good so mm -hmm. That is so interesting. Ah, oh, I definitely need to need to think more about that, about the um, about the kind of t time you spend with yourself, mm. right? Time that one spends with oneself reading and yeah. writing. I think at, um, at the moment, definitely, like I spend almost all of my time with myself because mm. you can't, <laughs> I haven't seen anyone else hardly in a year. So you're kind of forced to spend a lot of time with yourself. Mm -hmm. And I I find, you know, I don't mind that. But there are some people who who find that really difficult. And I, again, it's about finding a balance between spending time with yourself. And then for something like poetry, I found it really hard to write during the pandemic because I tend to write about things that I experience in my daily life. And there isn't much daily life at the moment. So I found it quite hard to find things to write about because there isn't really much going on. Yes, I thought when um, when in the Keats poem you said when I was locked in a little room, I thought of you relentlessly, and I was I was kind of wondering is that little room, you know, your university yes. room or your room um, now, or maybe even the poem itself. <laughs> well, at university last term, it was my first term at university, and I had to isolate twice. So I essentially mm. spent a month just locked in a tiny room far from home. Um, And it was very scary, very horrible. And I really hated it. I, I really, really hated it. It, um, it was really not good for me. I mean, the second time I had to isolate, it was, it was all very complicated and quite ridiculous. But basically, the second time I had to isolate, I wasn't allowed outside at all. And I, yeah. I, I, things started to unravel quite quickly. There are some days when it was fine. And there are some days when I was really, really frankly going out of my mind. And hmm. I, I thought... I did think a lot about Keats in that situation because when he was when he was dying, all he could do was sort of look out the window and it, look out the window into a, a world that he couldn't be a part of and he knew he wasn't going to be a part of again. I mean, at least when I was isolating, I knew that at some point I would be I would be allowed to go outside again. But Keats didn't even have that, and um, that was that's quite sobering, I think. Yes, yeah, and and the I feel like the intimacy of that isolation or that bedroom mm. and the kind of private moment comes out in the poem and then comes out in some other poems um of yours the yeah the domestic the mm. the intimate maybe maybe that's maybe that's trying to recuperate something from isolation yes um yeah I've, I've always been a quite isolated person though I mean I have I have friends who I love very much but I've always been 
mainly okay by myself um and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing I think too much isolation can be a bad thing but I think when it's on your own terms then it can be quite a satisfying way of life I think yes yes and how maybe that's a good point to talk about or bring in a social media mm. because or just media in general yes. right because I felt that was uh, something that was um giving you a bit of a headache <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but you're also really interested yes I mean that's the issue with social media and that I'm I like a lot of people I am kind of addicted to it <laughs> um, but I'm also <laughs> aware that it it really can bring out the very worst in people and I, I think there's it's hard because on the one hand social media is often used to sort of vilify young people And I, I kind of want to defend it and say, you know what, this is actually like something like a meme is is kind of an art form. And it kind of expresses the absurdity of living in the 21st century. And it's actually a way of communicating and feeling connected to a vast quantity of people. Um, but on the same hand, Twitter is ruining my like it's rotting my brain so that's like <laughs> quite a, a difficult thing to negotiate because I want to defend social media as like a revolutionary experience mm. for, for young people in particular and I want to defend it against the attacks by potentially older people who who see it as sort of the biggest flaw in modern society but mm. I do completely recognize the fact that it it, it does bring out the worst in people and it can be it can be a weapon that is used against pretty much anybody i think anyone who's on the internet these days is is very aware of its status as as a weapon um which mm -hmm. anyone can yield wield really you know it's kind of an open source weapon i think um it's hard yeah it. it's it's super democratizing but then that also bears so many dangers yeah. of where are things going who decides yeah. what And um, how do you feel that um, gives you opportunity to be creative? Because, for example, there's one poem about Jesus <laughs> of, like doing this open petition yeah, and, um... and kind of Twitter thread. And I felt, um, I felt that this was the form. Again, I, I feel like you're interested in form, mm. whether that be an old sonnet or like a modern form of Um, yeah so I, I I wrote this uh, each stanza is is under 280 characters so mm -hmm. each stanza is is a tweet um and again that's because I spend too much time on Twitter but I think mm -hmm. I'm kind of I'm I'm really fascinated by the figure of Jesus and everyone's always talking about you know if Jesus came back to earth today like what would he do and the, the intersection between say that and social media really interests me because for me And this is a really tricky thing to talk about as well, but social media activism can and does do a lot of good. It's really good at sort of getting people engaged and getting people introduced to sort of social justice um, topics. But I also think it can be really performative and lots of other people have spoken about this much better than I can, but you know, posting something on your Instagram story or retweeting something is not the same as the people who are actually sort of fighting for social change. And I feel a lot of the time people are pressured to, um, to, to do this kind of performative activism when it doesn't 
it's not actually going to change anything at the end of the day. You need mm -hmm. to take it that step further. And I feel like with this poem, I wanted to talk about how it doesn't matter how many times you retweet your petition to have Jesus not be crucified. Mm -hmm. He's going to be crucified. And yeah, it's just, it's hard to navigate because you don't want to say to people, oh, you shouldn't be engaged in social media activism because people, people should be, and it's a good thing. But I, I think it can sometimes be co-opted um, to give the mm -hmm. sort of veneer of um, progressiveness when it's not, it's not really doing that much. Um, but again, yeah. lots of, lots of people have spoken about this much better than I can. And I'm just kind of parroting what, what they've said. <laughs> yeah no thank you i find that but i find it so interesting that you 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 choose this really i mean um old old an old story an old character or um i mean whether one is religious or not something historical mm. somehow or other and in another poem you chose Dionysius yes. and you know you you and then and then the Keats as a as a presence mm. that's that's sort of all um historical yeah sort of the yeah. past that you bring back and that you use and <laughs> and, and, and it's it is this was like um a kind of fusion mm. cuisine <laughs> And I found that really, um, really interesting how those those old things come back in their new form. Yeah, um, I think that again, it's it's kind of about what what I was talking about earlier. How I think that you need to have empathy for yourself and also for other people. And say the the poem about Dionysus, like I, something like Greek mythology, is the kind of thing that is often criticized for being kind of like culturally elitist because it, it's only properly mm. taught in sort of certain environments and like being at Cambridge that's something I'm very aware of like I never I never had like a, a classical education at all and so when you go to Cambridge and there's all of these references to um sort of Roman poets and you've got no clue what's going on um I I, I think it's about trying to take something like Dionysus and saying you know, we don't have to look at this in its pure form. We can make this, we can make it new and we can make it interesting. And we don't have to discard the past, but instead we can kind of make it a little bit more spicy, as it were. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I don't I don't agree with the whole, I don't agree with the mm -hmm. idea that some people have that we should just completely forget about things like Greek mythology um, because they're, kind of outdated and, and classes which you know th that element is there of course but they can also offer us an, an awful lot if we if we put in the effort to to try and to try and see what's going on yeah mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and um I felt again I'm, I'm always sort of looking at those things through the lens of mm. punctuation because there are some people that say texting kills full stop or kills punctuation and standardized language and proper language and so on but in my research I feel very often that it's just a new medium yeah. and people are just feeling their way in how like, how can they use it and and what, what is working for them and what is not and as long as those two of those both of those things are going on at the same time standardized standardized learning off off mm. the web and then people can really just play around on the web and I, I thought the 
poem that you wrote where you try to explain a meme to Keats <laughs> um, and then um, you kind of write about how it sort of spells potentially eternity and never dying and that's actually not the case because our mm. culture as well is at some point just like any other civilization or culture or human endeavor yes. changing and maybe being discarded. I'm kind something. of really interested in this concept of the dead meme like because mm. memes, memes are kind of internet time is different from real time so if we say like memes started becoming a thing like 10 years ago if you look at a meme from 2011 it looks absolutely ancient it looks like a fossil that someone's dug up from the ground <laughs> and I'm kind of interested in the idea that a meme a meme is inherently self-perpetuating like that's what it does and it's mm. constantly transforming and spreading but at the same time they can also die and I think that's kind of that's kind of fascinating to me that they their one job is to perpetuate themselves but they're also mm -hmm. going to die a bit like a bit like any living thing and I quite mm -hmm. like to think of a meme as as something that is is alive but it, it can it kind of takes on a life of its own but it's also really reliant on how people use it I just I just think they're fascinating <laughs> I also think they're mm -hmm. just really fun <laughs> Um, I love I love when a new meme takes over and you see it everywhere and you feel like you're part of the meme club because you've worked out what the meme is. Like you see one <laughs> post and you'll think, okay, well that's interesting. And then you'll see two or three and four and you realise mm -hmm. that it's a new meme and the excitement <laughs> is wonderful. Mm. Um, yeah, that Yoda meme last year, oh, right? Oh, uh, the Yoda meme was so good. Some baby Yoda. Yoda was so good. I've, I've written a lot about memes I, <laughs> and mm -hmm. the poem explaining memes to Keats I mean I think I can't remember who said it but I, I initially wrote this poem for a, a challenge on the Young Poets Network about memes and poetry um, and they someone there's a really famous quote I can't remember who said it but someone has said that basically like a poem is like a machine for remembering itself and and the the challenge made the connection between like a poem remembers itself in the way that a meme remembers itself and so something like rhyme a rhyme is basically just a way of remembering itself over and over and over again like um like mm. a meme is so that's basically what what that poem is is about because I think Keats would um Keats would find the appeal of a meme he'd find them alluring because they they, they should live forever <laughs> but they don't <laughs> um, so I, I think that so this might be a bold statement, but I think if Pete had Twitter, he'd be big, big into the memes. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you would. Um, I found that, yeah, I found that so, so interesting, that connection between something that's so visual, although we also, like the visual always seems mm. the same, right? And then just the, the accompanying yeah. words change. Yeah. And um, you also wrote up this, um, not cheating guy, but like flirting guy meme where the guy looks over yeah, his shoulder yeah. at the girl and then his girlfriend is angry. You rewrote that as a sonnet in sort of early modern language, yeah. um, which I found hilarious and really clever to, to uh, kind of bring, bring back that that uh, theme that is really universal mm. <laughs> and, and, and ageless into this very into this form and this language that's very specific to its time so it's Elizabethan mm. but then um, again going back to today so there's these multiple layers of time 
with yeah. which you engage. Um, what? Oh no! Yeah. I was I was just gonna say that I I love the um the distracted boyfriend meme. It was so long lived. <laughs> it had so much potential. It it was so mm -hmm. powerful. I I want it to make a comeback. It hasn't really gone away. Um, I, I, no, I just it want it to have a resurgence. <laughs> Um, because it, it was it was so versatile as a meme it really lent itself to reimagining um, and I saw it everywhere um, so yeah it's, it's a great meme yes I agree I think there was even a punctuation meme with it because I'm I'm obsessed with whatever it means dot mm. dash or question mark or whatever and I have this little file with funky punctuation yeah. images <laughs> and there was something like I think the um the boyfriend was distracted the boyfriend was like a full stop distracted by a comma and then his colon girlfriend is angry something very nerdy and totally but that's what's creepy. great about it in that, that you can kind of have a really general one or you can have the most niche most specific thing <laughs> and then when you get it you're like you feel connected to all of these people because you've understood the meme and mm. i i just i just love that yeah it kind of reminds yeah, me so of the great. way that like early modern people would sort of instead of like publishing their work they would share it around to each other like in sort of manuscript form and mm -hmm. they people would rewrite the poems and they would have to inevitably change each time as people kind of got the wrong punctuation mark or added their own in accidentally and how it kind of would spread through a friend group in slightly altered form and I think a meme is maybe <laughs> a bit too yeah. hypothetical but I feel like a meme can kind of behave in a similar way to to that kind of thing totally yeah it's something that's being passed around and keeps changing keeps sort of mm. regenerating and then the original almost gets yeah. lost yeah of, of um all the different same mm. but different replications yeah. completely yeah and I wanted to ask you um, what you are working on um, now. I'm working on a, a smallish collection about my first term at university because I found that it, although the experience was really quite traumatic in places, it, it was also really unique. Like no one had ever started university in a pandemic before. And I found that the people who I lived with um, because we were forced to spend so much time with each other and we were forced to make really quite serious decisions together about our own health and the health of other people we we got really close really quickly and I wanted to write about them because they're fascinating people and I, I wanted almost all of my experiences were very mundane um, aside from the COVID stuff they were very mundane because there was no there was no great big life going on because of the pandemic. And so for me, I found, you know, this is about this is about everyday life. This is about people interacting with each other in an institution as old as Cambridge, having to experience something radically new and different. I, I, <laughs> I came away from it thinking, well, that was awful, but at least I have a lot of good material. Um, <laughs> so I've been I've been writing about writing about that mainly. Um, yeah, that's that's where I am. Yeah, I can totally, I can totally see a whole genre of yes. poetry or <laughs> I'm, something. I'm like conflicted about pandemic poetry. On the one hand, we need to talk about it. <laughs> but on the other hand, you have to do it in a way which doesn't constantly remind people about the pandemic because people are sick of it. So you have to kind of, again, find a balance between we, we need to talk about this, this thing that has happened that is so huge and is so massive and has touched absolutely everybody on the planet 
without you, you know without making it more more painful I think and that's something I'm interested in yeah yes as um at the beginning of the pandemic I, I read a book that was I think written in the 20s or 30s and um, the person just remembered with one line oh in 1918 I had a fever of 41 and I survived and was kind of proud of it it was sort of mm. a humorous student book and I I was so I was so touched and so struck because I had I had read this book before and it didn't really mean anything to me mm -hmm. and then I read it again and and, and there was just this one yeah. single line and I felt so much connection and so yes. awed by this because I was like yeah I, I mean I'm kind I'm kind of looking that. obviously everyone's looking forward to the pandemic being over but I I finally get the Great Gatsby now I understand mm. I understand why they mm. behaved like that. <laughs> And mm -hmm. it, it definitely does change mm -hmm. your your perspective on on things. I, this is a very ridiculous example, but I'm a huge Twilight fan. It started ironically, and now it's genuine. <laughs> I'm in too deep, but people people joke about Twilight. But <laughs> Edward, he he died of the Spanish flu. Like that's how he became a vampire. And at first you're like, mm -hmm. okay, thanks Stephanie, but now you're like, oh, poor Edward. He must have really been going through wow. it. And Twilight's having a bit of a renaissance yeah. at the moment for a, a, a lot of very interesting reasons, but I, I think that kind of has something to do with it. Um, that that Edward mm -hmm. Edward went through this experience that we're all kind of going through. <laughs> for sure, I didn't know that. I've, I'm I only um, Twilight kind of passed me by, but I do know Edward yeah. and Bella and stuff. And um, I I remember um, having this formal dinner in Cambridge once, and and I was very tired from writing. I think it was mm. my master's <laughs> big, big, big piece of work. And I had just submitted it and I, I was barely listening. But um, a supervisor next to me talked about f both fan fiction, but also kind of the um, the the connections between fantasy, health issues, actual health mm. issues and then fantasy creatures like yes. zombies vampires uh, mm. I don't know aliens and stuff and and whenever there's like this big massive global concern actually yeah. about health there is a, yes a ripple I did uh, I did a research project when I was in sixth form about vampires because I love vampire literature and I was looking I was looking at it through the lens of queer theory um so Victorian vampire literature mm. but vampires are basically any kind of contagion um there's a vampire for it so I think probably the the obvious mm. parallel is tuberculosis um in the way that it um well it's consumptive it it slowly destroys a person in the way that a, a, a vampire kind of does but even sort of during the 80s and during the AIDS crisis there was a big sort of like resurgence in vampire literature because the the link between something like AIDS which was contagious and poorly understood and, and terrifying for people um you can kind of see that in the, the myth of the vampire I think and it, it's fascinating that you would assume that vamp like vampires are kind of they're, they're evil right um they, they prey on innocent members of society and you would assume that queer communities would would reject that but a lot of people actually found that the vampire myth to be empowering like if society is vilifying you society wants nothing to do with you then mm. you can respond by saying well we we want nothing to do with you either um there were sort of clubs mm. in sort of san francisco in the 80s that were like basically just gay vampire clubs and um 
I think one of them was called, oh, I can't remember what it was called now, but it was, I think it was called like Kiss Me in the Grave, Not in the Closet, something like that. Um, something brilliant, but I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. fascinated by it. And um, I love Interview of a Vampire as well. And that is a massively important book for, for queer readers. And again, it shouldn't be <laughs> because they're, they're vampires, mm. right? They're vampires. But I mean, the Stat and Louis have such a, you know, they're, they're basically married. And if you don't have any representation of what it's like to be in this sort of a long-term gay relationship, then maybe you look to the Stat and Louis and you think, Do you know what? They may be vampires, but at least they love each other. <laughs> um, so sorry this this has got nothing to yeah. do with anything I just love vampires so much <laughs> I just went on a tangent <laughs> oh everything has to do with with everything also um when I talk about my project about punctuation people are like what on earth can you say about that but this has been going on for mm. me for like so many years and it just <laughs> keeps on giving um well also it, it gave me an opportunity to talk to you so I'm so uh, I'm so happy it was really a pleasure to you know uh, have a conversation about your poetry and your mm. you know your community well thank you thank, thank you so, you so much, much for having me I, I really appreciate it it's been it's been a lot of fun I don't usually get to talk about poetry for so long someone usually shuts me up <laughs> so it's been it's been quite enjoyable <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we can no, we can stop the recording and just uh, yes. keep, keep talking on this uh, mm. Saturday in March. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Nadia. Thank you.